The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is Vice Provost of Graduate Education and Dean of the Graduate Division, Dr. Jillian Hayes. Now, I know that is a mouthful, and I suspect we could spend the whole show just exploring her Vice Provost slash Dean position, but I also want to explore Dr. Hayes' life and her education and her career. So let's just get into it right now. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Professor Hayes. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Kevin. Fantastic. Well, let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? <laughs> you know, you think that you're asking a simple question, but that is <laughs> a little tricky for me. So um, I'm what they affectionately like to call an academic brat. Which oh, means that okay. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have two parents who are both academics. And yeah. so I was born in Syracuse, New York, because my parents were at Colgate, which is too small. It's in Hamilton, New York. It's too small to actually have a hospital. So I was born down the road a bit. Um, then we moved to Peoria, Illinois, and then eventually Athens, Georgia. So I do have a, a hint of a Southern accent, particularly when I'm tired. And that uh. is the Georgia girl in me. You know, I suspected that you were from Georgia, but you weren't there the whole time. But boy, I don't even hear the hint there. So anyway. <laughs> well, I must be well caffeinated this afternoon. So. <laughs> well, well, you know, here's the question that, you know, leads from just from what you just said. Did you always know that you would go to college? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. I, I sort of joke with, you know, I, I feel so fortunate to be at a university where both the provost and the chancellor are first gen. I think that's really quite rare. Um, and so I learn a lot from them in that regard, but I always joke with them that I'm like the opposite of first gen, whatever that is. You know, my parents both have doctorates. It was always sort of in my mind that not only would I go to undergraduate, but that I would go to graduate school one day. So it's a very different experience than a lot of our students and faculty and staff have had. Gotcha, gotcha. How did you decide to go to Vanderbilt University? That is another great question. So first of all, congrats to you, Kevin, for being so good at my bio that you even <laughs> know where I went to undergrad. But, um, you know, I did not think I had any interest in Vanderbilt. I wasn't even going to apply. And I had sort of 
thought about all the different places that I would apply. And back then, you know, I think I applied to five places and that was a lot. Uh, nowadays, I hear everyone applies to like 30. So right, it's a right. different situation. But uh, one of my parents, very dear friends, was a professor at Vanderbilt. And he said, I just think that Jillian will like it and you need her to come visit. And so we took a trip. Um, luckily, it's, you know, only about a five hour drive from Athens to Nashville. And I set foot on that campus and said, this is the place I want to be. Something about it just spoke to me. And the interesting thing was this same friend of my parents had told them six years earlier that my sister should absolutely go to UC Santa Cruz. And we lived in Illinois at the time. I mean, quite far from UC Santa Cruz and same deal. She went there. She was happy as could be. So he's somehow a whisperer of what colleges we should each go to. But I went entirely on the basis of gut and you know, people ask me this question all the time about grad school. How do you choose the right grad school? And it was not very dissimilar for me. I went a lot on gut, uh, wound up at Georgia Tech in part just because I already lived in Atlanta and I loved my life and it's a good engineering school. And so why not? And once I got in, I turned down, you know, I actually withdrew my application from other places I hadn't heard from yet and so on. And, you know, I think sometimes we overthink our choices about where we're going to go. And there's so many great schools out there, wherever you go are, are going to work out well. Gotcha. Gotcha. When you were at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, was Magnus Eggerstadt there? He, he's our Dean at UCI. Did you know him or hear of him? I didn't know him at the time. And I'm actually not sure if we overlapped at all, uh. but I did, when I heard he was going to be our new Dean of Engineering, I did reach out to my advisor who was still at Georgia Tech at the time and knew Magnus well, and they have a good rapport. And my um, thesis advisor is now the Dean of Engineering at Northeastern. And so apparently he and Magnus stay in touch. They're in a little new Dean's club. So that's kind of fun that <laughs> We have that connection. Oh, yes, yes. So very good. So your undergrad was in computer science and mathematics. And then was that an easy decision? No, this is actually one of my favorite. I'm so glad you asked me about oh, how good. A computer scientist. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, so for those listeners out there who have heard this story before, my many, many sincere apologies. I do love to tell this story. I started out at Vanderbilt as a double major in math and molecular biology. Okay. And Vanderbilt, not unlike UCI, has a lot of pre-med. So most of the people in my classes were pre-med, but I never wanted to go to med school. What I wanted to do, it was the 90s. I really wanted to cure AIDS. This was yeah. first and foremost in my mind. And I was fortunate enough to get an internship at the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and worked with now very famous for other reasons, uh, Tony Fauci, who at the time was the head of the AIDS lab there. Wow. You and worked with him? I did. Well, I mean, he was, you know, the big, very yeah. important scientist. And I was like the lowly undergrad intern. So I got to meet him a couple of times, uh, <laughs> but I worked with people who worked with him. Yeah, yeah. That was super cool. And this was like the biggest thing I could imagine in my dreams, right? I'm sitting there thinking, I'll, all I want to do in my life is find a cure for AIDS. And I am working in the National Institute of Health in their AIDS lab the most amazing thing we would get to meet HIV positive patients because we would take their blood um, to use in our, in our testing. And, you know, I'm going into these very cool putting on the bunny suits because we were working with radioactive tracers and all the stuff that a science nerd thinks is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And I was bored out of my mind. Oh. <laughs> so it, it turned out 
that I don't have the patience to be a molecular biologist. And I have so much respect for what they do, but I would, you know, I'd wait weeks of trying to grow my cultures and do all these things. And half of them grew mold because there was some contamination and you have to throw all that away. Or I would run a test and it would be inconclusive. And I was just, I found it tedious. I found it slow. I found it boring. I went back to Vanderbilt that fall and uh, sat down with the course catalog back in the day when we still had the big book right, course catalog and I'm flipping right. through them. And I realized because I was a math major, I could just get my math major, but then I would finish a quarter, a semester early. Uh-huh. And Vanderbilt didn't let you just stick around an extra semester. If you were done with your degree, you were done with your degree. And I was really enjoying college. So I didn't want to finish a semester early. Uh-huh. And if I picked up any other double major on the campus other than computer science, I couldn't make it work in my schedule. So I'd wind up staying a semester longer. Uh The only double major that I could have that would make me graduate in exactly the right amount of time was computer science because of the overlap with the math courses. So I enrolled in some computer science classes and found them just delightful. I, I just had so much fun. Even the classes that people said, oh, these are the weed out classes. I loved it all. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I became a computer scientist quite by happenstance and found that I loved it. Yeah, great. So did you go to grad school right away or did you take a little bit of a time off or, you know, time working between undergrad I did and not school? go to grad school right away. I knew I wanted to, but I couldn't decide at the time I was debating, did I want to pursue further education in math or in computer science? And at the time, I really thought I was going to be a theorist and you can do that from either discipline So I did what all undergraduates who don't know what they want to do with their lives do and applied to all the big consulting firms (laughs) and uh, wound up at Deloitte where I credit Deloitte as the place that turned me into a grown-up. A lot of people have that experience in college and that's great for them. But for me, I didn't really know basic things like how to communicate professionally in the way that I should or run meetings or just be responsible for myself and my own deadlines and things like that until I went to Deloitte. They're really, really good at taking people fresh out of college and turning them into professionals. So great experience for me. I also got to travel. I was, you know, able to just store all my stuff at my parents' house for a year and travel the world as I was working in Deloitte and just had a blast. I was there for a couple of years. And then I went to a company called Avanade, which at the time was a wholly owned joint venture between Accenture and Microsoft that they have since split off and created their own company. Had a great time there, got to work uh, in Europe during that time period. And then I was in Europe for Avanad when 9-11 happened. And I think for me being so far across the ocean, could not get back, flights canceled, all of those things from my family and from you know everyone that I, I sort of knew and loved was pretty profound for me. And that's when I decided it was time to go back to grad school. And I went ahead and started applying for programs that fall. Wow. So it really, you just felt isolated and it was really a personal thing that you like decided that you'd make a shift. It was time. Yeah. Mm. I knew I would go back to grad school one day, but I got to tell you the golden handcuffs of consulting are hard to shake off. You're Mm. used to having a good salary and having all of those travel perks and all of those good things and being around really smart, wonderful people. I was enjoying what I was doing, but it was time. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to be back with my community and, and back being a part of something else. Gotcha. So 
you go through Georgia Institute of Technology and you were majoring in computer science. Was that the yeah. next logical step? That was the next step. I only applied to computer science PhD programs. I also used my time in consulting to at least narrow that down and figure out that that was what I wanted to do with my life. Now, Georgia Tech, as you might imagine, has one of the biggest CS programs in the country. And also, again, the time period, it was 2002. So the tech crash was happening at that moment. Mm -hmm. So sort of a wacky time where they overyielded, and my incoming PhD class as a first year PhD student, we had 72 PhD students in uh, the computer science program that year. Um, So just a really kind of wild time to be starting grad school. Mm, Gotcha. So you graduate in 2007 with your PhD. What happens then? You know, that was um, when I came here to UCI. So computer scientists are very fortunate in that we don't spend years and years post-docking the way that disciplines do. And so a lot of people are able to go straight into an academic position. I actually, my whole life is characterized, I think, by uncertainty and then making decisions at the last minute that work out well. But I wasn't sure even up until the very end, did I want to go into industry or did I want to stay in academia? And I went back and forth quite a bit and I interviewed widely at both industrial research labs and for faculty positions. And UCI is a very top institution in my field. And so, of course, I was very excited to be able to interview here, but I wasn't sure. And then we came out, my husband came with me and we came for a visit. And I can remember this moment, rolling our luggage across the street from the Atrium Hotel back to the airport. We were gonna fly back to Atlanta and try to decide what we wanna do. And we had made a lot of jokes while we were here that being in Irvine sort of felt like you're playing the game, The Sims, where everything is (laughs) perfectly laid out for you. And I looked up at my husband, he just looked quite sad and he's not usually a sad guy. And I said, what's going on? And he said, this Sim wants to stay here. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I knew that we were going to come here. I honestly wasn't sure we would stay for our careers. You know, there was a part of me that thought maybe we would move back East at some point after 10 years, something like that. And, you know, that's now been 15 years and People ask me a lot, why did I come? I came for all the reasons that people come when they're an assistant professor. Amazing research program, really good colleagues. For me, I was particularly excited to be able to be with a school of ed and a medical school because my research overlaps with those areas, all those kinds of reasons. But that's not why I stay because honestly, you can get that great research environment a lot of places. Mm -hmm. I stay at UCI because it is the only place that I know of that takes very seriously both We are going to really care about diversity and inclusion. We have more than 50% first-generation students. We are Hispanic-serving. We are an Anapesi institution, all of these things, and takes very seriously quality at a level that we say we refuse to accept the narrative that inclusion and quality are not the same thing. And that message just gets repeated to me at every level that I've been at at this university. And I do think maybe we're not the only place, but there's not a lot out there. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's a really special, special yeah. university. Yeah, it's, that's really impressive. The first time I interviewed Doug Haynes, and uh, that was like four or five years ago. And at the time, I was kind of suspect. I was like, well, what is, what is this? And is it really necessary? And boy, after interviewing him, I was like, wow, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You're the right guy in the job. And, and you know, I, and I think, 
boy, the last five years have been a, an amazing transformation for a heck of a lot of people, including myself. So, um, well, please tell us, uh, you know, infomatics. I think a lot of people have a, you know, question about that. Like, what, what is it? What is that? That is the million dollar question. And if you ask any member of our department, you'll probably get a slightly different answer. But I sort of think of informatics as the place where social science and design and the humanities intersect with computer science and technology. And it makes for a really cool department. Like there are people in our department with PhDs in media arts, in business, in psychology, all of these different areas. Now I happen to be a computer scientist, but I get to go to work every day with people from all of these different fields. And it's just super cool. So technology is sort of always in the picture. It's always a part of the object of what we're discussing, but we're studying it and doing things with it in really um, very interesting ways that cross a whole bunch of disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI Vice Provost of Graduate Education, Dr. Jillian Hayes, and she has an outstanding reputation on campus, and if you don't believe me, just go to YouTube and look at one of her presentations. She is a dynamo, and right now we're just talking about She's come to UCI. She started teaching in, in 2007. We're talking about informatics. Now, you have courtesy teaching credentials in other schools. Is that correct? Can you explain that to us? I can. So one of the things that I love about UCI, speaking of all the things I love about being here, is this is a place that is built on the notion that no matter what department you're in, you may well wind up supervising PhD students or teaching or doing other kinds of activities in other places. So over the years, I keep racking up joint appointments in other places, but they're really important and essential to the kind of work that I do. So I have one appointment in the Department of Pediatrics and my longest standing collaborator, a woman named Kimberly Lakes, is a pediatric psychiatrist. And I've worked with her basically since I got here and being a part of pediatrics is really important to me because so much of the research that we do is focused on technologies that support children and thinking about child development and how we can improve child health. So that's that one. I also, no surprise then, given what I just said, also have an appointment in the School of Education. And our School of Education in particular is just on a meteoric rise. They're so impressive. And I get to work with their amazing students looking at things like how we can use technologies to improve learning outcomes for vulnerable groups, how we can think about assistive technologies and access technologies and learning settings and so on. And then most recently it occurred to me, you know what, I'm a computer scientist. That is what my PhD is in. And I don't actually have an appointment in the department of computer science. And this came up because I have this amazing master's student in computer science who wanted to do the kind of research that I do, thinking about accessible technologies. And I couldn't advise her unless I also had an appointment in computer science. So they were kind enough to let me do that as well. But the really important thing for me about those kinds of appointments, not just for the notion of feeling a part of these different communities, but it means that I get to advise students and serve on committees from these other groups. And Obviously, I love graduate students, or I wouldn't do what I do, but it's just so special to be a part of someone's learning journey from a field that maybe isn't your own. And how do you think about that and contribute to their education? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Very good. When did you, I, I see you were a CEO of, is it Avia? 
You know, it's always the big question. How do you pronounce this thing? <laughs> um, we pronounced it Avier. Okay. Um, and yeah, that was a wacky time in my life. So um, as I, I think, this, as I've said, the continued theme is I really believe in just taking on interesting opportunities as they arise. And several years ago, I was feeling a little twitchy. You know, I have traditionally gone in my career back and forth between the private sector and being at the university and I've done a lot of consulting work and so on. But I was feeling a little bit like, hmm. I've got a sabbatical coming up. Maybe I should do something bigger or something more engaged. And I happened to be talking to a friend who's a serial entrepreneur, and he was starting two new companies at that time and asked me if I'd be willing to get involved and just, you know, help them think about their design process a little bit, help them think about their product. So I did that. And then it was, oh, you know, would you be open to like maybe running our innovation group for a while while we build our software team and build that up. Okay, sure. And then after a few months more of that, it was, hey, you know, the founders don't really want to run the company anymore. And you've been doing really great. So would you move to the UK and be our CEO? <laughs> the company wow. at the time was, was running out of the UK. And what year is this about? Um, Gosh, what year was this? This would have been 2016, 2017, something uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. And I said, well, let's separate those questions because I'm not moving to the UK. I did think about it briefly, but no, uh -huh. moving two kids and all the rest, it was just too much. And I really like sunshine. I had a long talk with my dean at the time, um, Dean Marios, who is fantastic. And he himself had run a company uh, while he was department chair at the University of Michigan. So I knew he had done this before and wanted to talk to him about, you know, deep in my soul, I am always a professor. So I can't totally walk away from this. Can I do both? And he helped me figure out a way to really reduce the amount of percent effort that I was working at the university and figure that all out and make it work that I could take this on at the same time. Quite honestly, I thought they would say no to me about moving the headquarters to the U.S. if they wanted me to run it. But they said, sure, great. <laughs> we're happy to do that. We still had a secondary, we had a European headquarters still in the U.K. And we wound up, during the time that I was CEO, we wound up buying our biggest European competitor who were out of Germany. So then we wound up with German offices as well. So it was a little bit of a wild time where I didn't ever know what time zone I was in anymore. I was taking calls at four o'clock in the morning and flying to Asia one week and Europe the next week and, you know, things that... I look back now and wonder how I even did it, but I learned an enormous, enormous amount about running an organization, about what innovation really looks like in practice. A lot of things that I could take back into the classroom when I did come back. And I also learned how to do transition because at some point I realized that, you know, I didn't, didn't want to be a CEO forever and it was time to come back to the academy. And my board really worked with me to find the right replacement CEO and they helped me to hire him and, you know, really supported that transition. And that was also an incredible learning experience. Yeah. Wow. 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 Tell me about your development as a professor. I mean, you've had an amazing experiences, but were there any marks along the way that you were like, oh, this was a major class that I taught or, you know, I was given responsibility for a certain area. Do, do you have a story like that? I do. You know, 
one of the most funny things that happened to me when I first became a professor, and, and I say this as a person who had a lot of experience with professors, right? I grew up with them in the house. So you wouldn't think that certain things would surprise me this much. And I, I always try to remember that no matter what you know about being a professor, actually being a professor will be filled with surprises. But I remember lamenting to one of the senior faculty in my department after I'd maybe been here a quarter, not very long. And I said to him, like, I just haven't gotten anything done in two weeks and I'm really stressed out about it. And he said, what do you mean you haven't done any work in two weeks? Tell me what you've been doing. So I sat down and I ran through it all. I'm like, well, you know, on this day I had three meetings with students and then I went to teach my class and then I did some grading. And on this day I did these other things and sort of went through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, that's work. And I had this moment of realizing that, oh, what I thought being a professor was, you know, reading books and writing papers and doing my research is actually a part of what being a professor is, but a lot of what being a professor is, is service to the university, service to my research community, teaching, mentoring graduate students, all of these other things that actually you spend very little time on as a PhD student. So we don't really train you to do all these parts of your job. We just train you to do this research piece. In terms of informatics, you described this multifaceted, you can be talking about marketing, finance, management. Do you have any technological heroes? It, it will, as you were describing this, I'm like, wow, she's talking about like Steve Jobs, who you know took, <laughs> took all of it and put it into a phone. Do you relate to that? I mean, you know, do, do you admire that device that he developed? And are there other people like that that you admire? That is a great question. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there to admire, both in terms of their design work, as well as other things about what they do. Steve Jobs certainly is sort of legendary for people in my field, not only in terms of his ability to think about the future and see all kinds of things out there and so on, but also his ability to marshal the organization to believe in that vision. And I think for a lot of designers, that's actually the trickiest part. They can come up with these amazing designs, but the notion of how do you get everyone on board with that? We're so often too early. And my favorite example of that actually is the Palm Pilot, right? No one has a Palm Pilot anymore, but actually it was a great device. It was really wonderful, but in many ways it, it wasn't the time. So I think Steve Jobs always had a good sort of innate sense of the time. You know, right now, I'm really watching and thinking about a lot of smaller designers. So one of the things that people are talking about a lot in my community right now is how do we build designs that are accessible and inclusive and for diverse audiences, given that most of the designers and most of the technology folks in the big firms are still very male, very white, a little bit Asian, but you know, very middle-class, all of these kinds of things. And how do we think about this differently? And so I'm really excited about a lot of what I'm starting to see in our former students who have gone off into the world and the way in which they're shaking that up and saying that, you know, user experience and design and these things can look different. And the way that we can do that is by building truly diverse design teams. So people who have disabilities, people who have different life experiences, people who look differently than what we're, we're used to. So 
my hero, I don't have any specific heroes, but my heroes are sort of this class of people that are young and, and joining the industry now and not accepting status quo as the answer anymore. Mm, very good. When do you start thinking about going into, do we call it management or, you know, into an administrative position? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a tinkerer by nature. I think that's why design and computer science and so on work so well for me. And I like to solve problems. So I sort of joke with one of my very good friends uh, on the faculty here is very much an empiricist. She likes to go into an environment, study it, deeply understand it. That's her thing. And I like go in an environment and immediately see all the stuff that needs to be fixed. And I want to design solutions for it all. And we sort of joke that I'm like, well, how can you make anything better if all you're doing is studying things? And she will joke back with me. Well, how can I ever learn anything if you keep changing it and messing with it all the time? (laughs) But that orientation of me to the world and to my research life and even my teaching, I'm always iterating is the same thing that drew me to administration. So I'd be, you know, sitting there realizing, you know what, we need a master's program in this area and we don't have one. Okay. I guess I'll make it. Or, Hey, you know, I really want to fix things that I see going on with graduate education or be a part of that. Let me go in there and mess around with it and see what I can do to make it better. So anytime I'm sort of dropped into any environment, I'm going to want to change it. And leadership roles in academia are one of the ways that you can really affect that change Mm -hmm. and take on some of that responsibility. Very good. Excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest today is Vice Provost and Dean of the Graduate Division, Professor Jillian Hayes. Professor, what is the difference between Vice Provost of Graduate Education and Dean of the Graduate Division? And gosh darn it, can't they just put that title both together? (laughs) (laughs) That is an excellent question. I got Yeah, can you fix that, Professor? (laughs) Let me fix let me fix all of our titles. I got teased mercilessly. I think I was five days into the job or something and went to an event that I was speaking at, and I had my new title now. So I've got the vice provost title and the grad dean title, but I also, as we already covered earlier, have joint appointments in multiple yeah. departments and I have a named chair. So if you actually- You're right. Oh my gosh. All the things. <laughs> and you're very proud of these things too, but <laughs> but by the time you get through halfway through it, people are like, what? 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 People what? are what? nodding off halfway through yeah. my title. It's true. Um, it's a great question. So Way back in the day, so now I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Um, On most of the UC campuses, graduate education and research were tied together. So here on our campus, that would be the equivalent of Pramod, our vice chancellor for research, his group being joined with graduate division. And there was one person who sort of managed that whole environment. But you have to have a dean of of academic programs that give degrees. So the dean actually gives out the degrees uh, for the graduate programs. So all the graduate programs, no matter what your school you're in, the name on the bottom of your diploma is the dean of the graduate division. And so that's where that dean title comes from, is really being charged with the academic mission of thinking about the graduate programs and so on, and being the sort of chief academic officer, if you will, charged with graduate programs. The vice provost title, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure about this, came in when they split things apart. Uh, And the vice provost title is much more about 
the organizational part of graduate education. So thinking about the vision of where strategically these things sit within the university and trying to make sure that our graduate students are taken care of in housing or that their childcare leave is taken care of or whatever other resources that they might need. So that's my basic understanding. I could be totally wrong on that, by the way. No one's ever given me a job description that actually says vice provost job over here, <laughs> dean yeah. job over here. But the way I like to think about it is the dean job is really about the academics and the vice provost job is sort of all the other stuff, the operations of the unit. Gotcha. Uh, according to your official office website, you, you lead campus efforts to recruit a dynamic, diverse, and excellent set of graduate students and postdoctoral scholars. How many grad students do we have at UCI and how many postdoctoral scholars? Do you have any idea? I do. I think about this number quite frequently. Uh. So we have about 6,000 under my charge. Uh, the medical students, the actual MDs, are another group that are not included in that count. And the JDs, which is a small group, also not included in that count. But in terms of PhDs, masters, all of those folks, there's about 6,000 of them. And we have just under 500 postdocs. And so together that group, you know, makes up a good chunk of our campus community, but our campus community is, is quite large. One of the things I think you'll see in the next several years is as it becomes the case that for professional careers, more and more frequently, a graduate degree is an expectation now. My hope is that we will rise to that occasion and serve that group and grow our graduate population from that sort of around 6,000 to something closer to eight to 10,000 with a lot of those folks being master's programs, professional programs, things that serve our students' careers, not necessarily people, you know, our PhD programs do well, they're about the size they should be. They're probably not going to get a whole lot bigger, but really that chunk of people who want to come back to us because a bachelor's just isn't enough, but they don't really want to be faculty. Gotcha. Makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a really fascinating job. What do you think? I do. I mean, I love this job. I tell uh, people all the time. It's hard. It's been especially hard the last two years. It's a weird right. time to take on a job like this. Right. right. A global pandemic. But I have the privilege of you just think about how special a student is. They've already gone through high school. They've already gone through college and they love learning so much and they're dedicated to their field so much that they're going to spend more time with us here. And we have the fortunate situation of being able to choose from really the best and the brightest. We have an enormous number of applications every year into our programs. And for a lot of them, this is the last time they're going to be in school in their lives, right? And we get to be a part of that. And I just think that's so special. And I just was at an event last night for winners of the ARC scholarship, and they gave talks about their research and just, these are our future Nobel Prize winners. These are our future Fulbright fellows. These are all these amazing people. And I get to know them when they're young and so excited and just encountering their scholarship for the first time. And just incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Wow. Do you interview them all? Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Is that, no. do you have, a, are there other people in your department that do that? You know, we have a bit of a, 
uh, bimodal distribution of the students we get to know in grad division. So they, we get to know the ones that are winning all the awards and are, you know, we do have a certain number of interns in our office who are interested in perhaps science communication or they want to be administrators themselves one day or things like that. We get to know the student government leaders really well. We get to know the ones that are, you know, taking on leadership roles on campus as part of our diversity efforts or international mentoring efforts and things like that. We get to know that group really well. And then we get to know the group really well who are struggling, who are in crisis, who need some extra help. They might need counseling from our office. They might need social work services. They might need emergency funds, all kinds of reasons that they come in. But the vast majority of them are sort of doing quite well, quite happy. I see them around campus. They might pop into my office hours from time to time to say hi and ask a few questions, but we don't get to know them as well, unfortunately. Gotcha. What's the challenging part of your job? The most challenging part for me is that I can't fix everything as quickly as I would like. So, you know, especially you, you heard my story very early on about, you know, I quit being a biologist because it was too slow. I, I <laughs> like the pace of computer science. I like that I can quickly make a thing and, and we can make progress and so on. The wonderful thing about the University of California, and one of the reasons that I stay here and love it so much, is that we have a very distributed leadership and governance model. So we take faculty input, student input, everyone's input into what we're doing incredibly seriously. But that means by definition, when you're going to create committees and task forces and everything to, to study everything that you might do before you make a decision, it's just a little bit slow. So I often mm. say to our graduate students, you know, your advocacy today is going to help the students who come behind you in three years or five years. And we are so grateful for your participation in this process and your advocacy. I wish that I could fix things immediately for you. But often it takes years. You know, if we're gonna develop a new program, it takes a couple of years to get that going. If we're gonna change the way we pay our graduate students, it takes a few years to phase that in when you're talking about the scale of thousands of students and so on. And so that the days when I'm frustrated are the days when I wish I could just wave my magical wand, snap my fingers and change things the way that I want. But most days I'm actually really grateful for for that kind of stability, because it means that when you do successfully enact a change, it's there. We are committed to it for forever. And that's powerful. So I really feel like I can make impact when I stick with it. Just some days, I wish I didn't have to stick with it quite so much. Gotcha. How about your, you know, when it's a great day at, at the office, what's your you know best part of the job? I have two best parts of my job. So number one best part is when the students come by. I just love it. They, when they come to my office hours or I get to go to a fellowship meeting or we have Grad Slam every year, which is the speaking competition for grad students and I get to see their stuff. I mean, that's, I just love it. And even to be honest, when they come to me in crisis and things are really bad, when I can help them, I find that really, really exciting and, and wonderful for me that, that I feel like I'm making real impact on a day-to-day -day basis when I get to to work with the students directly. The other time that I feel really good is when we do make a change, the kinds of changes we were just talking about that are sort of more permanent. So the one for me right now, it has been almost since I started, you know, if it hadn't been COVID, we would have probably moved a little faster, but more than a year in the works of moving our guaranteed funding model for our PhD and MFA students from a sort of nine month academic model to a full 12 month model. 
And all of the work that we did to analyze that, understand what it would cost, understand what the benefits are to the students, but also to the university. How can we implement this? Getting input from the students on what we should do. And our AGS president has just been so wonderful throughout this whole process and helping us think about it talking to each of the deans and understanding what their concerns are with this kind of move and how can we make it all work, getting the provost and the budget office on board, all of those kinds of things, an enormous amount of work. And then, I don't know when it was, a couple of weeks ago, we got to actually announce that to the campus and to be able to look at the students in the eyes and say, this thing that you wanted, that we have talked about, that you have helped me think about, we are doing this. And once we make an announcement like that, it's the University of California, we stand by our word. And so to know that that is done and good for forever, you know, that's a, that's a kind of impact that I'm just is so excited on a day like that when I can make that kind of long-term impact. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I understand you've been traveling a lot in the last couple of months. Can you give us a little flavor for what that's all about? Yeah. So this is funny. I don't know if you're having this experience, but I used to travel all the time and I was really good at it. Like I had my go bag. I could be out the door in five minutes good, and go for a week or two. No problem. I then didn't travel for two and a half years. I mean, the last trip that I took was in early March in 2020. I went to DC to the NSF to do a review panel and everyone was so stressed. I remember like, you know, Lysoling my seat when I got back on the plane and, right. you know, of course not wearing a mask because we didn't know better then, but, um, right. you know, came back and then didn't travel, didn't leave right. my house for extended periods of time, but certainly didn't get on an airplane. And then all of a sudden, just about a month ago, things changed. And I, went to a conference in Arizona, which I fortunately could drive to. And the whole conference was outside, which was so impressive. Uh, And that was amazing to just be with people and be in a conference again, which had been so long since I had done that. Our annual meeting, we do an annual meeting of all of the graduate deans in the UC. And we normally rotate those amongst the campuses, but the last couple of them have been canceled. We were able to do that in Riverside and actually, again, be together and be a support structure for one another and share information and so on. And then last week I was able to go to the CEO roundtable retreat. So really network with a lot of our top industry folks that really support UCI and participate in those discussions. And then this one I'm a little nervous about next week I'm flying to Switzerland. So I just am really, really hoping that I do not get COVID and wind up stuck in a European hotel room for two weeks. And, you know, that will be a a small meeting, but with all of the researchers who are a part of this giant global network around child development and technology that I'm fortunate enough to be able to lead with Candace Odgers here from social ecology. So, you know, just really excited about being a part of those events and hoping that that helps me overcome my nervousness about what am I going to do on a 12 hour flight? And I don't remember how to pack anymore. (laughs) Well, good luck with that. How many vice provosts do we have on campus. So you report to the provost, right? So do you have provost meetings with all the vice provosts? Does it work like that? We do have some different meetings. So I'm just trying to think the the provost cabinet has more than vice provosts in it. Uh So there's also the head of the library, the head of the art museum and so on are in there, but probably on the most 
frequent basis, I work really closely with our vice provost for teaching and learning, who's also over the undergraduate side, uh, Michael Denon, our vice provost for academic planning, Roxy Silver, who I was fortunate enough to work with when she was in the Office of Inclusive Excellence and now is in academic planning and she's a great partner. And then of course we have a vice provost for academic personnel who covers faculty and, and uh, postdocs and instructors and other kinds of folks, Diane O'Dowd. So we do have a little vice provost cadre, if you will, but the provost cabinet's a little bit more expansive than that. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Vice Provost of Graduate Education, Professor Jillian Hayes. We've been talking all about her amazing career, and now we turn to a little self-reflection. Now back to the interview. I know you're not really supposed to bring up the age issue, but have you ever noticed, it seems like people in your position have a lot of gray hair, but you don't have any gray hair. <laughs> well, you... I have a very good hairdresser. So that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the gray hair bit. It's there. It's there. You just can't see it. Um, but no, it's true. I'm a, I'm definitely a little bit more junior in my career than, than normal for this position. And, you know, that goes back to like, why did I do it in the first place? I'm such a tinkerer. I had thought that Frances Leslie, my predecessor, would be in this job for much longer than she was. She decided to retire after uh, well-deserved retirement. I think she was in this role for 12 years and she was just, you know, you reach a point. Um, but, um, I had thought she'd stay in for longer. And I had always said to myself that I really care about grad education. When Frances retires, I'm going to apply for this job. And because she retired earlier than I expected her to, I honestly didn't think I would get it. I thought there's no way. Um, and, and this was part of, I was still running Avier at the time and I was going to carry on being CEO for a while longer. I was fortunate enough to get the position and so wound up leaving Avier a little earlier than I had anticipated, but it all, it all worked out. I do think having run a company made a huge difference in my ability to do this job without some of the other experiences that typically you would see for someone yeah. in a service position. And, you know, I just understood things like budgeting and HR much better than I ever had as a faculty member. So I really encourage anyone out there who has any kind of entrepreneurial instinct in them at all, go and do it because you learn so much that's also applicable to a job like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, you know, how about a little self-analysis? So you, I mean, I think myself and, and others listening have a sense of it, but what do you sense as your strong points? You know, yeah. What, what do you think your strong points are? Oh God, that's a, that is a tricky question. Um, the one I get told the most is my enthusiasm. I think that might be yeah. language for, wow, you're really loud. I'm not sure. <laughs> no. Yeah, it, it, it really is enthusiasm. You're backed up with like substance. But I am, I am incredibly enthusiastic and I'm also just tenacious. And I think, you know, for anyone out there who might be thinking about becoming an academic leader, that's one of the things you gotta, you gotta just decide there's things that matter and you're sticking with them. And, you know, I always joke with the PhD students, the P is for persistence. And so if you can carry that kind of willpower to finish your dissertation through to other things, there's nothing in this world you can't do if you're willing to just put your nose to the grindstone and be persistent about it. I like that. Very positive. I like it. How about adversity? You know, I always like to ask professors, like, you know, students, I think, look at professors and, and administrators like, oh, it looks like it's so easy. It, it comes so naturally. Can you name a, a situation or a time that was, you know, that you would look at as an, an adverse situation and that you 
you know, maybe you had to grind through it or, you know, can you give an example of that that might inspire somebody? Oh gosh, there's so many things. I mean, especially for grad students, I will tell you, I think I cried more tears in grad school than I had the whole rest of my you? life. You? Yeah. I just, you know, I had a, I had a, a dear friend who's now a professor at the University of Toronto say to me in grad school, grad school is an N-year gut check. And if you aren't asking yourself on a pretty regular basis, whether you can actually do this, you're not really paying attention. And it's so true. And one of the things I try to do as grad dean is make it slightly less painful. You know, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be reduced to tears on that quite of a regular basis, but that is the reality in a lot of ways, because it's the first time in your life that you are truly independent in this really scary way. And it's, it's sort of all on you make or break your committee will give you advice. Your advisor will give you advice, but it's really you. And so Every six months or so, I just, oh my God, can I do this? What is happening? Um, so I think that's one of the, the biggest times for me. The other is once I came here as an assistant professor, um, you know, I was quite settled. I had a husband, I had a good job. I thought life was really good. Uh, and we decided we wanted to have kids and that did not work out very well for us. And eventually it did. Um, sorry, I feel like that, that doesn't come <laughs> We really struggled. It was a lot of years, a lot of money and a lot of science. And now we have two really beautiful boys, but it was not easy. And I think the, those kinds of health challenges, and I've had a variety of other health challenges in my life, but that was the first one where I really questioned my own body. Mm. And those are moments I think in life, you know, and we're all thinking about it now. There's so much disability in the world and and more so now with COVID and long COVID and so on. And I think a lot of people are starting to not be so sure about their own bodies anymore. And that that's a scary, difficult time. Uh, and you're also trying to get tenure and you're trying to do a bunch of other things at the same time. So those are kind of the, the, the big things for me, but you know, I don't really believe in mistakes and I don't really believe that there's any adversity out there that we can't make it through if we really need to. Um, and so one of my goals in life around here is to reduce the stress and the pain so that people can get through those really adverse times. And we all need a little help, but I think people are, I think people are remarkably resilient. I think about what we've just gone through the last two years, the fact that I was like homeschooling two kids while working full-time. And so was my husband and we made it through and we weren't even in the worst situation. A lot of people had it a lot worse than we did and somehow humanity endures. And I find that very inspirational to think about. Fantastic. Professor, how about you co-direct the Global Jacobs, is it CARES Research Network? It, it is series. Series. Um, I like to just test you. I like to just have random words and acronyms <laughs> that no one can say. That is the trip that I'm going on next week is oh. to go meet with the series folks. The Jacobs Foundation are just an incredible group of people. They invest in science and in scholarship in ways that I can only dream that I would ever be able to do. I just find them so remarkable. And they gave Candace Rogers and I this incredible opportunity to build this global, their, their requirements were fairly simple. They, it had to be global. It had to cross the sort of computer science and design with child development, psychology, learning and education spaces. Um, and we had to choose the best people that we thought would 
go and do amazing things regardless of the project. And that kind of mindset and that kind of investment in people rather than projects is just exhilarating to be a part of. So we are really lucky. We're still in our first year. We've got commitment to do five years of this, and then we'll see if we can keep going after that. But we're already bringing together just some of the world's best minds to really think about kids and technology and where are we all headed. That's incredible. Wow. How about the Kavli Fellow from the National Academy of Sciences? That, you know, gosh, there's so many things. This is a really fun walk down memory lane with you, by the way. Um, there are so many things that are just so foundational to my career that I don't think about every day, but when I do it, it's so cool. So the Kavli foundation is this really incredible group of people. They invest in science in these great ways. And they worked with the national Academy many years ago to develop the national Academy had no young scholars program. So everything, if you think about who gets elected to the national Academy of science, it's like pretty big deal people who've been in their careers a long time. Right. And they worked with the Kavli people to develop this young scholars program. So they do joint programs between the Chinese Academy of Sciences or the German Academy of Sciences, or, you know, take your pick with the U.S. scientists. And they go across all eight areas that they're in, biology, chemistry. Ours, I think, is technically applied math. They don't have a computer science one, but you get the idea. And they have a presenter from the U.S. delegation and a presenter from um, whichever country that you're partnering with in this particular event. And it's like science camp for adults. It's just the coolest thing. Like you'll go to a session on dark matter one second, and then the very next session is on like how we're going to do carbon reclamation to combat climate change. And then the next session is on like passwords in, you know, how we have secure apps. Just all kinds of really interesting things. And so I got to be a part of that for several years, which is very cool. But probably the one most fun thing about it for me now is that also another young American scientist who was on in the physics group, James Bullock, he and I met on a trip to China together through this program. Wow. (laughs) And he was an assistant professor here. And so was I, and now we get to work together as deans. So for those listening who don't know, James Bullock is the Dean of Physical Sciences. So really fun to like go back and look at these pictures from 15 years ago, this time that I met this young physicist who told me, you know, all these things about dark matter that I still don't really understand. but pretend to. <laughs> Fantastic. Vice Provost, it's been a, just a true pleasure. To be honest, just to humbly say, I knew you were a dynamo coming into it and I'm leaving it being more impressed. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a very fun conversation. Have a great trip and we'll see you when you get back. Thank you. Thank you again to UCI Vice Provost of Graduate Education and Dean of the Graduate Division, Professor Jillian Hayes. As I said in so many words during the interview, she is a force to be reckoned with. I'm glad she's on our side, not only for her tenacity and perseverance, but equally important, her leadership in taking this amazing university to bigger places and spaces yet to come. Here, 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 UCI continues to impress. Go, 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 Anteaters! Now coming up next at the top of the hour is public affairs interview host Eswaldo Diaz with his Spanish-speaking show, 30 Minutes to Mindfulness. Enjoy! You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of this tremendous land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters.
For an encore of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and reminding you that this year's Nobel Laureate in Chemistry, Professor David McMillan, who earned his Ph.D. at UCI, will be giving a free non-technical presentation at the Barclay Theater on Tuesday, May 24th. Simply Google David McMillan Barclay Theater for more information and registration to attend. See you there. And now, closing the program out with my show theme song is Master Piano Man Fred Kaplan with Side Pocket from his CD Signifying. Woo!